All right, so we are um, starting a new sermon series today um, entitled The Body of Christ. And we're going to talk for the next four weeks about what the church is, okay? What distinguishes the church from other organizations or groups of people? What is it that makes the church the church as opposed to something else? And there are usually two experiences that I encounter Um, There are those who grew up in church, like my wife, she grew up in church. She never remembers a time when she didn't go to church. And so she kind of got acclimated um, over time, right, to the the weirdness of what we do and who we are. And so, like, she's never had to really stop and ask those questions where, like, I became a Christian. I was uh, just about two months away from becoming 16. I was 15 years old. And, uh, and, And so there was a lot to learn about church, right? So I I came to Christ, I became a Christian, I got saved at a youth camp experience away from the church building and where the people normally met, and, uh, and I was so in love with Jesus and so in love with the people who told me about him, like my conclusion was, I'm going to go back home and I'm joining that church. And so I came home on Friday, called mom at work and said, hey, I'm home, God changed my life, and I'm joining this church. Of course, mom tapped the brakes a little bit. She's like, hey, let me, let me go check this place out. I mean, do they handle snakes? Do they try to get you to drink Kool-Aid? Like, let me go find out about this thing you're calling the church before you just join. And, and, and I can remember those early days. Um, I, it was a small rural um, Southern Baptist church out west of Weatherford and a lot of great folks there. But I can remember how awkward it was at times early on. Like when I first walked in on Sunday, I thought it was going to be like youth camp. Right, and so I come in on Sunday, and my buddy Tommy's like, hey, man, we sit over here. The youth sit over here. And so I oh, okay, I didn't know, so we're going to sit over here. And, and I sit down, as soon as I sit down, everybody stands up, and I'm like, whoa, what just happened? I look, and there's a guy up there singing. And so I'm like, oh, okay, so we're supposed to sing. And my buddy's like, yeah, grab the hymnal. But what's a hymnal? Like, where else do you use that word? Like, he's, no, it's the book. Grab it and, like, open it to the number, he says, and sing with him. I'm like, okay, I can do this. And so I pull it out, victory in Jesus. And so there's these little stanzas, so I'm singing the first line, and then I sing the second line, but wait, that's not what you are singing. He's like, no, 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 you got to drop down a paragraph and read the first line of the next stanza, and then the first line, oh, okay, I got it. And then, so we get through stanza two, and then I go to stand, sing stanza three, and they drop to four, and I'm like, what? He's like, oh, yeah, we skipped the third verse. We don't ever sing it here. <laughs> Dude, how did you put the third verse in there? And then we finish the song, and this guy walks up on the stage, Everybody closes their eyes and bows their head. And I'm thinking like, oh gosh, what's about this? Is this hide and seek? I don't know. <laughs> so I've got one eye open. I'm watching. He starts talking to God. And I'm like, oh, this is the prayer time. So let's pray. And we're praying. Amen. We're done. And then we pass this wooden plate that had felt in the bottom of it, which you're supposed to, it had money in it. I didn't know what you're supposed to take. You're supposed to put in. I didn't know. And so I just passed it on to the next guy and kind of watched what was happening and, uh, and over time, though, I got my bearings, and I realized why we did certain things and what they meant to the church and what they meant to me as a Christian. And it, and it took time, but to be honest, it was a little bit weird at first, right? I mean, what other context do you come together and sing about blood and, and dying on the cross and resurrection and like, right? Like, Garth Brooks doesn't sing about those things. Like, where do these songs come from? And, and again, over time, I got my bearings. And so what we're going to do in this sermon series is we're going to lay out um, some biblical parameters for what the church is and talk through why we do what we do. And so today our goal is simply to answer the question, what is the church? What is it that distinguishes a specific certain group of people from any other 
group of people. And we're going to work through some distinctions. So the word church, in the original language, the Greek language, it's the word ekklesia. And it's actually not solely a religious word. Okay, it could be used outside of religion. It basically means this, a set-apart, distinct group of people who have a distinct membership. So it could be used to describe a city council, right? So not everybody at the council meeting is part of the council, so that, that would be that word ecclesia, a distinct called-out or set-apart group of people a distinct group of members to some certain uh, organization. And so it's actually uh, Jesus who uses the word first in the Bible in Matthew 16 when he begins to talk about the future and what will happen, and he begins to describe his followers coming together as the church. So in Matthew 16 is where we're going to start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the, of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loosen on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is a monumental moment in the Gospels. This is a private moment that Jesus had with the 12. He pulls them to the side and he asks them some really significant questions. Who do the people say that I am? And so the disciples begin to answer, well, I've heard John the Baptist. I've heard, um, you know, Jeremiah, or I've heard one of the prophets. And Jesus stops and says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this profound statement. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus acknowledges, not only does he say, Peter, you're right. He says, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. Flesh and blood didn't figure this out. My father in heaven revealed this to you. And then he says this, makes this statement. See, Peter's name in the original language, the word Petros could be translated like Petra rock. And so he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And I will give to the church the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever the church binds on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever the church loosens on earth will be loosed in heaven. But hey, guys, come here, listen. I'm not ready to go public with this yet. This is a really profound moment in Jesus' teaching and ministry where he's establishing his identity with the 12. Now, it's also a place where you see a lot of division happen in the modern-day church. If you ever wonder why, why do we have so many different denominations? Why do we have Catholic and Protestant and then Baptist and Methodist and Charismatic? And, and it's, it's passages like this um, where we tend to, to separate. 
okay? Um, and I'll just give you some examples from this text. So for example, from a Catholic perspective, if you're reading this text, the focus is on Peter. Peter makes the statement, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. And then the play on words, you are Peter, the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so from a Catholic perspective, this is Jesus inaugurating Peter as the lead apostle and the pope of the church. And the keys have been given to Peter. And they're his keys until he passes them on, right? So he's lead apostle, first pope. Um, if you go into um, what you call like a hyper-charismatic church, like the faith healing movement, faith healing church, um, this passage of scripture is going to be interpreted entirely differently. The focus is not going to be on Peter. The focus is going to be on the keys and the church. And the emphasis is going to be that Jesus has given the keys to the church. And essentially, Jesus was handing over his supernatural power and authority to the church to begin loosening and binding things on earth. So you might even hear them pray that way, like we bind this or we loosen this. And, and it's the idea that Jesus is giving his authority to the church, the keys, then the church becomes his authority here on earth in a supernatural way. Now, I wanna give you some help if I can, okay, on, you know, on how to read the word of God and how to get to a place where you, you feel confident that you've got the meaning that was intended. Um, so what we have to understand is that the Bible has dual authorship. So each person who's writing, human being is writing, has a reason why they're writing. But by faith, we know that the Holy Spirit of God is also imputing his intention into that, superintending. So either way you look at it, these words have an intention. They were written down for a reason, right? So we call authorial intent, right? So like if you write me an email, you might talk about a lot of things, but there's always a primary reason why you send the email, right? To set up a meeting, to ask a question, maybe to encourage me or whatever, right? If you sit down to write a letter, people still write letters, right? Some of you do. It's kind of old-fashioned. It's this thing we should do with paper and pen. We write it. Um, but anyway, uh, and then you put a stamp on the envelope. Like it's, yeah, you have to lick it. Anyway, so yeah, it's an old-fashioned way of communicating. But the point is, if you're going to write a letter and go through all that work, you've got a reason, right? You don't just have random words to throw out on a piece of paper. You're like, hey, I need to write a letter to so-and-so. So this is helpful Bible interpretation uh, tools for you um, and for me. It's always important to take a step back and ask the big question. What's the primary reason this is being written? Before I get caught up in the details, right? Before I get caught up in the play on words or for, before I get caught up on one keyword, I have to ask, what's the primary reason this was written? What's the angst? of this text. So when we do that and we take a step back, it seems like the primary thing Jesus is doing here is not establishing Peter's identity or authority. He's not establishing the authority of the church. It seems like the primary thing he's doing is establishing what? His own identity. Isn't that where he starts? Isn't that how the conversation begins? He doesn't start talking about the church. He doesn't start talking about Peter even. He says what? Who do the people say that I am? So we know what's on Jesus's mind, right? His own identity. And then he asks a follow-up question. Who do you say that I am? And then when the right answer is given, he affirms that, says, blessed are you, Peter. And so when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, then we would deduce from that the rock then is the identity of Jesus. So Jesus is the rock upon which the church will be built 
not Peter. You follow me? And that's how we get to this place, right? And so when we get to the keys then of the kingdom of heaven, we don't see that as God giving the church a blank check and his authority to go do what it wants to do. Then we have to ask the question, what are the keys that unlock heaven for people? And we see that it is, in fact, the identity of Jesus. That is what unlocks heaven. Now, what we want to do is recognize this is in the gospel of Matthew. So you have the the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four accounts, life and teaching of Jesus. Right after that in your Bible, you have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the, the story of the church launching. So Jesus doesn't launch the church. Jesus establishes the doctrine and teaching of the church. Then he commissions his disciples to go start it. That's how he, right? The Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus saying what? Hey, guys, come here. Now you go make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded. So in the book of Acts, chapter 1, you have Jesus now about to ascend. He says to the disciples, hey, guys, listen, it's time. It's time to do this. I'm getting ready to go. And I'm going to go, but it's okay. My Holy Spirit's going to come. And you'll know it when he comes. He'll come on you in power. And when he does, here's what I want you to do. Take this thing I'm calling the church and take it global. Start here in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, then Samaria. But don't stop until you get to the ends of the earth. Take my church and launch it. And that's Acts chapter 1. So something really profound happens in Acts chapter 2. We call this Pentecost. This is the day that the Holy Spirit descends on these earlier early followers. And so you've got the original 12 disciples, minus one because Judas bailed. So you got 11. So in Acts 1, they replaced Judas. And there's several, there's, there's still a remnant group of people who follow Jesus, about 120 folks. And in chapter 2, they're in the upper room praying and worshiping together. And this is where the Holy Spirit descends on them. And the walls began to shake. And they began to speak in tongues. And at this moment, in Jerusalem, outside of where they are on the streets, there are travelers from many different nations that speak many different languages. And as the people are walking by, they're hearing these these men speaking in tongues, but they're hearing it in their own language. And so after a few minutes of just kind of figuring out what is happening here, Peter steps up and begins to preach the first sermon. Now think about that. Most of the folks who were at the first sermon preached by the church were not on their way to church. They're just hanging out in Jerusalem. And so we're going to pick this up in Acts 2, uh, starting in 32. This is about halfway through Peter's sermon. I just want to take a glance at what Peter's preaching right? Because I want to know, was he talking about the keys? Is he saying, hey guys, Jesus gave me the keys. So here's what that means. Is he saying, hey guys, Jesus called me the rock. And so I want you to know I'm the rock and here's how that's going to work. What is Peter preaching? So this is Acts 2 starting in 32. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
Jump down to 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what's the main topic of Peter's sermon? It's Jesus, right? He wants to introduce this crowd to Jesus who was crucified, who not only was crucified, but who raised from the dead as the son of God. And then in verse 37, look at what we read. After hearing this, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That description is this idea of being convicted and wrenched on the inside. You've been there. It's more than just like feeling guilty or feeling embarrassed or shame. It's this idea of like just being really broken. They were cut to the heart when they heard Peter preaching Jesus, both crucified and resurrected. And so the people who were hearing this are like, whoa, I was on my way to the market to trade my lettuce for some squash. And these guys started preaching and now something's happening on the inside. Something's stirring inside of me and I don't know what to do with it. What do we do? And then Peter responds in 38. Peter said to them, here's what you do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so clearly, Peter's proclamation is not himself, and it's not the church, it's Jesus, right? That's the primary content of his sermon. And the people are hearing it, they're cut to the heart, They want to respond. Peter's instruction is, here's how you respond. Repent and be baptized. Now, from here, um, we can continue this passage on out. So after this, uh, Peter says, 39, for the promise, so this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So he's thinking global, right? Right? And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a big day for the church. From 120 to 3,000 through one sermon. Now, was Peter a key leader in the inauguration and the launch of the church? Absolutely but he's not the theme of the message, right? He's not the content of the sermon. He's not preaching himself. He's preaching Christ. And we see clearly what the keys are, that when Christ is proclaimed and people hear it and believe it, it unlocks salvation and eternity, right? That's where he's getting at. And so the church is binding and loosening with this set of keys, which the Bible calls the gospel. We proclaim it, whether it's from this forum or it's sitting at Starbucks, you know, sharing a couple of, a conversation, a couple of cups of coffee, and or you're in, you know, talking to the person who works in the cubicle next to you, or you're a parent talking in your home. When you proclaim the gospel, when you speak it out, and somebody hears it and believes it, this same supernatural work is taking place. That's the keys that unlocks eternity. And 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 thank God, Peter doesn't hold those keys. Right? Thank God that we don't have to go to Peter to get the keys so somebody can get saved. The church has the keys. That's what Jesus said. And the keys are this, that he is the son of the living God. Now, we're going to walk through some distinctives together. If you like taking notes, or if you, especially if you like to fill in blanks, I don't always do this, but there are seven fill in the blanks today. So rock your world, have fun. Um, 
we're going to work through seven distinctives of the Christian church here, uh, starting right now with distinctive number one. Um, Distinctive number one is this. The church is the gathering of those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To believe anything less than that, to believe he was Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? That's to miss the church altogether. The church is the gathering of those who believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God. We see that clearly in Acts 2. We see it in Matthew 16. The second distinctive is this. The church is the gathering of those who have been baptized. Let's talk for a minute about this. We, uh, we had a um, person baptized in our first service today, um, Stacy Burdick. If you know Stacy and Chris, it's a beautiful couple um, a couple in which they've been just wrecked by the grace of God and then restored and redeemed. They love sharing their story, just, just love sharing it. Um, we got to hear a little bit of Stacy's story in the first service today. Um, and so today through baptism, um, she, was doing, she was doing something significant. So what was it? So we don't believe that baptism saves you. That's what happens afterwards, right? Nor is baptism what gets you in or keeps you out of heaven. So how does baptism fit in? See, we believe that baptism, while it's not a work that can save you or get you into heaven, it is intimately connected to those two things, right? It's a really important part of who you are in Christ. So in the Old Testament, the the outer mark was, was circumcision. In the New Testament, now baptism has become the outer marking that you belong to Christ. And so baptism is an expression that you personally have heard and believe the gospel, you believe that Jesus is the son of God, but it's also a beautiful outward marking that you belong to his church. That's why we do baptisms primarily in the context of the church because it is a part of who you are. It is expression of who you are, right? And so somebody might say, well, can I get into heaven without being baptized? Yes, you can. But the fullness, remember we're talking about what distinguishes you from somebody else or distinguishes the church from other groups, right? One of our distinctions is this, right? Baptism, baptism. There are lots of fabulous Christian organizations out there, but they're not the church. And again, one of the distinctions is baptism. So we do baptism here in the church. Now, what's gonna follow from here, 42 through 47, is really just this beautiful portrait of the church in a very raw form, okay? And by raw, it's real, it's genuine, it's authentic. But this is, the, this is the inauguration, the inception, the beginning of the church. It's a seed that's planted in the ground that will, that will burst forth and grow to something beautiful that we find in the New Testament. So in verse 42, we read this, and they, who's the they? That's the 3,000 plus the 120. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who are being saved. And we're going to talk through five additional distinctives from this passage here, starting right at the very top. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. What does that mean? Well, it's important to understand the background that Jesus in Matthew 28 said, hey guys, go make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching. Teaching them to observe all I have commanded. So essentially Jesus is saying, go teach the church everything I've taught you, right? Go teach the church this beautiful truth, this beautiful doctrine that I've taught you and lived among you and I'm handing to you. Now you go teach the church. So that's what the apostles were, were teaching, right? So a distinction of the church is that the church is a gathering of people who are devoted to biblical teaching. Biblical teaching, that's so important. And here's why. Um, everybody in this room has personal preferences. Everybody in this room, maybe everybody in this room has personal convictions, even non-religious personal convictions. Maybe you're a person who you know, just feels really convicted that you shouldn't litter. Okay? It's not actually a biblical principle, but that's a conviction you have, right? So we all have personal preferences. We all have personal convictions. What we're talking about here are biblical convictions. Let me just kind of distinguish the difference. So not everybody in this room likes pizza, right? Well, maybe that's a little far. If you don't like pizza, will you raise your hand just so we can make fun of you? Okay, perfect. So I'll just assume we all like pizza, but we don't all like the same pizza. I'm a barbecue chicken guy with onions. Raise your hand if you don't like barbecue chicken with onions. Okay, so you're, you're weird, but it's okay. So even if we all like pizza, we don't all like the same pizza, and even those who like the same pizza like different crusts. I'm a thick crust kind of guy. Barbecue chicken with onions, that's me. I know, you're shaking your head. Why? Because those are our personal preferences, right? It's not what unites us. Some of you are dog people. Some of you are cat people. Some of you are like no pet people. It's okay. I, I have cats. I like them. I don't love my cats. I like them. I'm good if you have a bumper sticker that says I heart my cats. It's fine. That's your personal preference. Just don't get mad at me because I don't love my cats, right? I like them, but the second one trails in mud on his furry little paws into my house, like, right? Done. Out. Get. Go. Now, I'm saying all that to say, like, like, there's a difference, right, between my personal preferences versus my biblical convictions. And so I have to allow the scriptures to inform my biblical convictions. And, and this is the place where I get to, to kind of park my personal preferences, right, that you and I might be united on biblical convictions. Follow me? So while you love your cats and I like my cats and somebody in this room hates cats, we can come together, though, united in Christ. Why? Because of biblical teachings. Does that make sense? This is what unites us here. So they were devoted to biblical teachings. Uh, the next distinctive, distinctive number four, uh, the church is the gathering of those who devote themselves to fellowship. Okay, this is the, the biblical word koinonia. It means a whole bunch. Uh, I mentioned earlier about my early church experience. When I first got involved with church, I heard the word fellowship. I associated that with Wednesday night potluck dinner right? Now, there's nothing wrong with a Wednesday night potluck dinner. You bring the mashed potatoes, I'll bring the Salisbury steak, somebody else brings some mac and cheese, and we'll just, we'll just, we'll throw down on some carbs, right? Lots of starches. It's good. But we mean more than that when we say fellowship, right? It's actually the idea of sharing in something common, right? So when we worship together, that's fellowship, right? When we, when we, we give our, our tithes and offerings together, that's part of our fellowship, 
Um, when we spend time sharing life together as fellowship, when you have your car breaks down and you need a ride to work and you, instead of Ubering, you call somebody from church or you text somebody in your community group, that's fellowship, like serving one another. As we see clearly here, meeting one another's needs, those are all expressions of fellowship. And so when we think about the word fellowship, I've added this, this more, more uh, detailed definition. It's the gathering together in corporate worship and the meeting together in small group settings, because they were doing both, right? They were meeting in the temple and meeting in each other's homes. In order to grow spiritually and generously share their life and their faith with one another. So we mean all of that, right? So it's not enough just to be a Sunday morning Christian. Like when they would kind of wrap up their Sunday morning worship time in the temple, as they were leaving, they would say things like, hey, what are you doing Monday for dinner? Well, after you get done from work and after I go draw water from the well, and right, well, let's come together and you bring some beans and I'll bring some rice and -and so-and-so can bring a chicken and we'll throw together a meal, but it's not about the potluck, it's about what sharing together, sharing time together, pressing into one another's lives. This is a a daily walk with Christ with one another when we talk about fellowship. And so they were devoted to that. Uh, The next distinctive here is distinctive number five. The church is the gathering of those who devote themselves to communion. Um, So Jesus gave the church two ordinances, baptism and communion. Okay, these are expressions of worship that again, distinguish us from maybe other religious groups or even other Christian organizations. Um, some churches take communion once a week. Maybe you're used to that. Every Sunday is communion Sunday. Um, some of some have grown up in a setting where it's like every quarter or a couple times a year. Um, we do it once a month, but that's not because we think we have the, you know, the secret to the recipe. That's just, that's the rhythm that works for us. Um, the point isn't the frequency, the point is that you do it and that it is a distinction, right? It's the, it's the church that serves communion. It's the church that worships Jesus and remembers Jesus through communion. And so we see that here at the, with the breaking of bread. Um, breaking of bread, by the way, um, in this text can mean communion. It can also mean eating dinner together. But really those two things were merged together as Jesus was with the disciples for the Last Supper. They were sharing a meal and that's where he inaugurated communion, was in the midst of that. He's like, hey, pass me that bread. Hey, remember this bread we're eating? He breaks it and that's the beginning of communion. So it looks like they were doing both here, right? Breaking bread together in a more formal setting, but then also breaking bread in each other's homes, eating dinner together. Had a, a family walk into one of our services this morning. They're new to community groups and, uh, and they just made the comment, yeah, we were over at so-and-so's house eating breakfast before we came over. Another community group member invited them over, cooked them breakfast. Like, that's fellowship, right? Coming together, sharing life together. And then communion is the more formal version of that where we break bread and share the cup. Now, uh, distinction number six, the church is the gathering of those who devote themselves to prayer. That was in there. So here's what we mean by that. We are a church who prays together and a church who prays one for another. Both are implied here. So when we come together, there's a time to pray. If you are involved in a community group, there's a time where you pray together, right? either the begin, beginning, the end, or both. Um, there's a point in our services where an elder will come up and lead in prayer. It's important for the church to, to pray together, 
But it's also important for the church to pray one for another, whether that's our prayer partners we have at the end of the service. That's what they're here for, to pray with you and for you. Or that's, again, calling somebody, texting somebody from the church, walking into the room and somebody says, how are you doing? And then all of a sudden you just break down. What, what an appropriate time to be the church. We don't have to wait for the prayer partners. Pray right there, right then. I know, but the service is starting. Who cares? Be the church, right? Pray one for another. And so we see the early church was devoted to prayer. And then this last distinctive, number seven, the church is the gathering of those who devote themselves to living the mission to make disciples in their everyday lives. Um, That's a phrase we use here every Sunday. And it's clearly what's happening here. Did you see that? The church starts with 3,000 people responded and then they devoted themselves to all this stuff. And then what was the last verse we read? Verse 47, praising God, having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. They didn't wait for Sunday to roll around to be the church. They didn't roll for, wait for Sunday to roll around or a mission trip to roll around to live the mission. Like they were living it on Monday, wherever they went, right? Inviting people to come and to know and to believe in this Jesus who was crucified and resurrected from the dead, the son of God. It happened in their Sunday settings and it happened at the market on Monday. They were living this mission day by day and the Lord kept adding to their number. Um, one final thought, I was, I was talking with somebody this past week about um, our church and they were asking me if I was excited about all the growth. And I said, you know what? There are times where I think, oh, this is good just like it is, right? We're just now figuring things out. But if we are obedient to Jesus and do what he said to do, the church is gonna grow. Because why? It's not about us. It's about taking his church right around the world. It's about living this mission and the Lord adding to our number day by day, those who are being saved, right? And so to not desire the church to grow ultimately is me not wanting to obey Christ. And so it's not about becoming the biggest church in town or trying to compete with this church or that church. It's simply about walking in faithful mission in my everyday lives. And if the Lord adds five to our number in 2019, we'll celebrate that. If he adds 3,000, oh my God, I will have no hair left, but we'll celebrate that because it's the Lord who adds the number. We just, what, what do we do? Devote ourselves to biblical teaching. We devote ourselves to fellowship, to prayer, to communion, right? We devote ourselves to these things, living the mission in our everyday life, and then we put it in his hands and we let the Lord add to our number. Um, I, wanna, I wanna pray now, and as, as I pray, worship team's gonna come back up. Um, you know, notice we didn't talk anything about worship styles here. So, so here's what I want you to understand. Is the church more than these seven distinctives? Yes, but it's not less than these seven things. Is the church more than what we talked about today? Yes, and we're gonna get into that over the next few weeks, but it can't be less than this. The church is at least this. You follow me? And so as we prepare to respond, there may be some ways God's challenging you in terms of your involvement in local church. Maybe you're here visiting today and you have a home church and you're realizing, you know what? I need to go and actually be involved in the church. Hey, we celebrate that with you. Maybe this is your place and you're like, ah, I, I, I knew this day was coming. 
right? And now you're feeling that kind of stirring. You're like, I need to get more involved. Maybe baptism's the next step for you. And you're like, okay, so I've been putting this thing off and today's the day I make that commitment. I don't know how, you know, how God's speaking to you. We're going to pray. Uh, we're going to sing. We're going to spend time in fellowship and worship together. And uh, we're going to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful portrait of the church. Um, uh, God, we recognize that we are only involved in the church by your grace. Um, none of us is deserving, God. We're a lot like Peter. We're really quick to put our foot in our mouth. We're really quick to get it wrong. There's so many reasons why we are disqualified um, as being your people, but yet by your grace, God, you have called us to be your people. You've called us from every tribe, every language, every ethnicity. Got to come together as this beautiful mosaic portrait united around the identity of your son, Jesus. Oh God, we pray that for our church this year, God, you could draw distinction for Solid Rock Church. God, that when people come to this place, they would recognize the church as more than a box with a steeple, but they would see that the church is truly made up of your, your people. God, help us to be your church. We pray in Christ's name.